Welcome to the Plexus Presidential Podcast Series. We are excited to have Dr. Matt Ayers, President of Wesley Biblical Seminary, as our guest. Well, hey, I always like to start off the conversation with, um, you know, with your journey and really get an understanding yeah. of who are, the, who are the mentors that helped shape your path? Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. So um, as far as mentors that shaped the path, um, I didn't have anyone particularly uh, come to me and say, hey, I think your presidential material, I'd like to work with you or mentor you. It's kind of been, especially in theological studies, you know, we have these theologians and Bible scholars and, and kind of pastoral types that I've just been around, you know, since my undergraduate years at Asbury University, um, who has more shaped me theologically to be able to think critically and theologically about leadership and what it means to lead. Um, and some of those key uh, people in my life have been uh, Dr. John Oswalt. Um, he's a really, among uh, Old Testament scholars, biblical scholars, Dr. Oswald is a really well-known guy. Um, he wrote some of the authoritative commentaries on the book of Isaiah. Uh, he translated the book of Isaiah for the New International Version, the NIV. Uh, he was the lead editor for the New Living Translation. So he's a, he's a, a, a world-class Old Testament scholar. And he has been, more than anyone else, instrumental in shaping my own theology. Um, he did serve as the president of Asbury University for a few years, and he was the interim where I serve now prior to me coming in. Um, and he's given, he's also on the board now. And so he continues to mentor me, but more in a theological way to make sure I'm thinking theologically about the role. Um, and then uh, after that, I would say uh, a guy named Dr. Charles Leake has been essential for me as well. Um, Dr. Charles is a, was a pastor for many decades. Um, he came on the board where I was serving as the president of university in Haiti. And uh, because we had a mutual interest in Haiti and he was doing work there and we were doing work there. And, and uh, in terms of thinking, not just theologically, uh, but pastorally about the leadership role, uh, creating healthy culture around me um, and the importance of healthy culture and leadership and not just administration, you know, and not, not merely, you know, fanatical execution kind of stuff, but making sure that people are in the right seats on the right bus, that sort of thing. And then another uh, major influencer was Dr. Ray Easley. Uh, Dr. Ray um, was the dean at Wesley Biblical Seminary when I was a student there, and just a gentle, kind soul. And um, I learned a lot from him, just the way he carried himself, the way he interacted with his peers, his patience, his humility. Um, just I needed more of Ray, and I still need more of Ray. Unfortunately, he passed away. Uh, a few years ago. Uh, and so Dr. Ray Easley was a huge influence on me. Uh, also, he also taught me a lot with regard to the nuts and bolts of um, sort of the academic um, administration of a higher education institution, um, you know, understanding, you know, how student records work. And because that's kind of how I got started in higher education. Uh, well, I really started as just teaching and then moved into more academic stuff as a provost. And, and he showed me the ropes on all that stuff. So he was instrumental that way. Uh, and then finally, I'd say, and there, the, the list is obviously longer than the, this, but the main ones um, would be my father-in-law. His name's Malcolm White. He actually passed away just a few months ago, uh, but he was a, a huge influence on me in terms of um, operationally uh, identifying the critical path, the crucial path. He was actually a civil engineer. 
uh, built, you know, Matt had an impressive career of building locks and dams and bridges and roadways. And, um, and he taught me, you know, kind of how to think operationally where he was dealing with moving cranes, you know, to be at the right job site at the right time and, and project supervisors and managers and making sure that the product was quality and the mix, the mix of the concrete was sound and pure. And he taught me to not ever, ever cut any corners, you know, in his industry, you can't afford that as a civil engineer, you know, lives are at stake and a lot of money is at stake. And so I really learned from him the priority of absolutely doing everything with the utmost uh, operational integrity. Don't uh, try to save a buck on stuff that, that really matters because, you know, it's got to hold up the payload. It's got to hold up the load. Um, and so uh, he, he really helped me uh, to think well operationally. So those would be the the main ones. There are others. Um, so John Noswalt, Charles Lake, Ray Easley, uh, Malcolm White, father-in-law. So, yeah. But absolutely. And I'll tell you, I, I do love the blend and the mix of, um, you know, uh, your mentors, you know, in the academic world, whether it be faculty or administrators, but then also, you know, for, on the non-academic side, you know, it's nice to have that, that, that blend. Yeah. Yeah, the civil engineer and even like speaking to the blend, even still my wife, I mean, she has emotional intelligence that's off the chart. You know, I'm a firm believer that there's all different kinds of intelligences and and she can read a room, man. And she has taught me ways to pick up on cues of this person's not happy right now or they were upset at what this guy said over here. And man, she's just taking me to school on how to read body language and micro expressions. And, and, you know, she'll say, did you catch that so-and-so was upset there? No, I didn't catch that at all. And she explains it to me and how she knew that. And so even my wife, just a huge, huge contribution to my overall, I guess, you know, tool chest as far as leadership. Well, and, and, and now, you know, let's look at, at uh, you know, Wesley Biblical Seminary. How, how are you finding students today? Where, where do your students come from? Yeah, so it is really quite a mixed bag. Uh, we have most of our students are from uh, conservative Wesleyan Methodist denominations. So um, most people are very familiar with the United Methodist Church. That's the biggest Methodist denomination and one of the biggest Protestant denominations in the world. Uh, but you know, as they've been becoming progressively more and more theologically liberal, um, you know, they've bro broken apart at various times in their history. And those little breakups have created these other offshoot Methodist conservative groups. And we serve a lot of those groups. We serve um, the historic black Methodist denominations in the deep South. So AME, that's African Methodist Episcopal, AME Zion, um, Methodist uh, Evangelical Church. And so uh, Church of Christ Holiness USA, that's a historic black uh, holiness uh, denomination. So because we're in Jackson, Mississippi, you know, we, we get a lot of these which are just wonderful, wonderful folks to work with. And then we're also very ecumenical at WBS. Yes, we love John Wesley. We love the doctrine of entire sanctification, Christian perfection. We promote it. We teach hands in the broader streams of, you know, classical Christianity. Um, you know, we're a biblical seminary, not a theological seminary. We're freestanding. Uh, meaning that we don't exist to serve a specific stream or denomination or a real narrow branch on the tree of Christendom. Um, we exist to serve as many people as possible who believe in, you know, a classical uh, doctrine of scripture, the inerrancy of scripture, sufficiency of scripture, clarity of scripture, and um, classical Christian doctrine. And so um, a lot of people uh, find themselves at home with us at WBS and different groups. Right now, our number one represented denomination 
among our student body at WBS is non-denominational, <laughs> which is which is really interesting. I think that I think it's going to shift over time to be global Methodist. The global Methodist recently approved us as one of their six schools, and we've already got a, a dozens and dozens of applications in the pipeline uh, for for that. So, um, so we find our students from all over. Uh, but Wesleyan Arminians don't get a ton of Baptists. We don't. We definitely don't get any Presbyterians. Uh, they're going to go to strict Presbyterian schools. We get a lot of non-denom Methodist and Wesleyan Arminian schools. So Nazarenes, Anglican. Um, so more, you know, those groups. Well, and and, and as far as as far as students, um, you know how how do you um, how do you make sure that you help guide them down the path that, that they're passionate about? I mean, I understand that you have bachelor's degrees and, and master's in divinity and chaplaincy. Um, but when students come uh, come to the seminary, do do they know the path that, that they're going to take or, or how do you help shape that or cultivate? Yeah, that's a that's a really, really good question because it is it's a bit of a mixed bag. So some of our students, so some will have the will match the profile of they're called to full time ministry. They're seeking ordination. They need your educational requirement for ordination. And so they know their path. And depending on the denomination and what they require, it's either an MDiv or an MA or, you know, X amount of credit hours um, and different denominations have different requirements. Um, and so there's there's that profile of student. They know what they're called to be. They're going to be a pastor. They're going to be a missionary. They're going to be a chaplain. And they sign up for that, that degree program and, and complete it. And then there are others who they're not sure what they're called to, they, but they know that they're hungry to go deeper in the knowledge of scripture and to improve their, you know, acumen, sophistication, competency, and theology. And so they just come to us going, you know, I just want to learn. I just want to learn. What, what should I take? We say, well, you know, if you want to learn and you want to be a, if you want to be a serious student of scripture, we recommend you take, you know, biblical languages and cognate biblical languages, take inductive Bible study, take your high level exegesis courses. Or if someone comes along and says, you know, I really just want to understand, you know, the Wesleyan distinctives as a Protestant denomination, uh, then we'll, you know, we'll take an MA in theological studies. So it all depends uh, And those who are hungry. And then we try to, for those who aren't exactly sure what they're called to, they just know that they're called to be hungry. We try to plug them in. So, um, I've, you know, say you've got this student here who just wants to go deeper in their knowledge of scripture. They're passionate about that. They're passionate about the church. And we see giftings that are being cultivated in that student and, and the faculty are coaching out giftings. Um, and then we'll get a call from a bishop or a denominational leader and say, hey, we have this church over here that we really need a pastor, small congregation. Do you have anyone? Then we think about who's in our ranks that, that are still exploring. Could we, could we plug into or recommend to this position? So those are the, the typical profiles. The, on the one hand, ordination seeking, they need to get their academic requirements to fulfill for ordination. And then the other hand, those who are just seeking to go deeper and then looking to us to help plug them in as uh, they go deeper and become more equipped for ministry, if that makes sense. It, uh, perfectly. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, no, and I appreciate that. Um, so what what did you learn being a president in, in Haiti that you've been able to apply at WBS? Yeah, so culture eats strategy for breakfast. That's what I learned. Mm -hmm like the main lesson. So you can come in with the greatest strategy or strategic plan in the world. And strategic plans are good. I'm not against them. Uh, but it can't be the tail that wags the dog. You have to look at the people in the room. You have to cultivate good. You have to understand the culture of the people in the room. 
that to understand the culture of who you are as an institution, I think that institutions like corporations are persons, you know, they take on personalities, oftentimes shaped after, shaped after according to their leader, um, you know, the whole leadership personality cult uh, notion. And that's not altogether a bad thing. I mean, as a Christian, um, I believe that the personality of the church, which is the biggest institution on the planet, is shaped after the person of Jesus Christ. And so I think there's something very sound and natural to that. Uh, the fact that we serve a triune God as three persons, right? So in any case, not just understanding the individual cultures and the various diversity of backgrounds of your leaders in the room, but also the culture and the personality of the organization. If you can understand those things um, and really tap into what that is and then get the right people. I know it's a cliche, it's overused, but it's just plain true. Get the right people in the right seats on the bus um, and, and, and match people to their giftings. Uh, that's when you've you've uh, you've struck gold right there, um, and then help people cultivate giftings that are maybe latent as well. So in Haiti, we had you know we had to train up our own people. Um, Haiti's got a shortage of of trained you know competent professionals uh, for lots of different reasons. And so if I needed a registrar, we had to train them. We had to find them and train them. If we needed an accountant, bookkeeper, we had to find them and train them. And everyone doing their job at the university where I served had never done that job before. And so, um, and so we had to coach out those latent abilities and have to create a culture in which they knew they could ask questions. They knew they were allowed to fail, uh, that there'd be grace. Um, they knew that, you know, we were behind them and supporting them, yet we're resourcing them to do the job. Now, I, I remember one guy, um, I needed a vice president of operations um, to help us with the camp, running the campus in Haiti. You know, you gotta, in Haiti, you got to produce, drill your own wells, pump your own water, produce your own electricity. And so you're on a campus, you know, 13 buildings, but the infrastructure you've created yourself. And it, it's a lot of demand operationally. You have security guards, mm -hmm. walls, all wow. this stuff. And, and, you know, your own network system, no network professionals. You got to train those guys. And so I needed a VP for operations. And I, I knew the guy I wanted to use. And uh, I came to him and said, I have this job. I want to move you into it. He, he was a graduate. He was already working another job. And I wanted to move him into this other job. And I said, here's the job description. This is what I need you to do. He goes, well, I don't know how to do those things, but I, I trust you and I trust that you're going to show me. And as long as you're here with me, um, I'll do the job. And so that, that to me meant like we won the trust game and we were in a good place. So to me, that's the main thing. Culture, eat strategy for breakfast. Um, yeah, that, there are other things I could think of, but that's the big one. Yeah, and that's, <clears throat> that's I mean, that really is... Uh... Uh, you know, it's, it's amazing in a number of ways, you know, it, 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 I think it makes you realize that, you know, you're, you're not just the president of, of, of a school, but, you know, the, the local, really the local community and, and, and really how, how the, the institution itself survives is really reliant on, on the local community, the local environment, um, as well as the education. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and man, I always, I'm one of the biggest compliments that I can ever receive as a leader of an institution is that people want to work for you and not just for the money. They want to be a part of what's happening. They're, we're, you want to attract the good new upcoming talent or even the old talent, attract just the talent where people go, man, what do I need to do to get a job there? I don't even care what it is because the people who work there love their jobs and uh and they enjoy what they do it's a fair it's a fair community it's vibrant it's reasonable it's grounded uh, but it's moving forward it's challenging the status quo it's bold and courageous yet stewards resources well 
And to me, people take that back to their communities with them. You know, you're not just providing jobs for people. You're, you're making disciples. You're shaping them. Uh, you're creating hope, um, not just putting money in their pockets. You're fulfilling their, their, their calling, their need for a sense of purpose. And you're creating a healthy, healthy little, yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's an ecosystem. You know, it's a broad ecosystem that extends well, well beyond, extends right into the employee's living room. Um, So, yeah, I agree. Well, and I I think, you know, when you talk about culture, you know, what what type of culture did you want to create at at WBC? And I guess when I say that, you know, the culture as far as employees, as far as faculty members, administrators, but also as students, what type of culture are, we, are, are you trying to continue to cultivate? Yeah, that's, that's a really, I never thought about it in those terms. You know, I can, I can envision it, I can see it, but as far as describing it uh, is a little more of a challenge. I think the main, uh, the main act character trait of the culture that's ideal, in my opinion, is humility. Uh, and then transparency. And those certainly go hand in hand because you can't be honest with someone who's an egomaniac or else they're going to, you know, react and, 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 right. you know, carry out retributive justice and this sort of stuff. So when the community around, uh, when the, the employee, the, let's say the institutional culture is humble, we know what our strengths are. We're realistic about our weaknesses are, and we have the discipline to, make adjustments accordingly to those, those weaknesses. And we can very freely uh, call out areas of deficiency in which we can grow and that not be a threat. You know, we're secure in right. our identity and faculty can come and say, Hey, I don't know about this. I, I want to question this. I've, I've got a guy in my cabinet. I've got four vice presidents and I've got to deal with this one cabinet member. Um, say, look, if we're in a cabinet meeting and everyone's agreeing on something, I need you to disagree, even if you don't really disagree, just right, disagree with it. Yeah. In every meeting, I need you to disagree. And the, what that does is that allows, uh, number one, the group to think critically. There's a, it's called Red. There's a book out there called Red Teaming. I don't even remember who the author is. I read it years ago. You know? And uh, the idea is play the devil's advocate to expose weaknesses in your thinking. And, um, and also, so that's the one thing. It helps us to think critically and identify gaps. and goes, Why do you disagree? What could be wrong about this? Where could we lose? Who would benefit if we lost on this, this particular decision? But beyond that, it also gives other cabinet members the sense of freedom to disagree. Go, oh, well, if Eliza's going to disagree, I'm going to share my real opinion because I really don't think it's a good idea either. Um, and so um, I, that transparency and the humility that when Elijah, the one vice president for enrollment, when he disagrees and he sees that I'm not going to be reactive and defensive because I'm not an egomaniac right. and I, I can go, tell me more, tell me more. Where am I wrong about this? Then other members can feel safe and go, yeah, you know, I think I agree with Elijah. And, and so, um, so, yeah, I think that humility, transparency uh, are the big ones. Um, the real big ones, actually, I think if those two things are in place, everything else uh, is kind of smooth. It's kind of smooth. And the, the, the issue, though, is that um, we can think that we're humble and there's areas where we're actually quite proud or insecure that haven't been revealed yet. And that's where when we get reactive, those are clues. Why am I reacting this way? Why am I getting defensive? This means there's something going on I'm not aware of yet. But we better fix it or else it's going to be an issue. Yeah, no, I, I, I really, I, I appreciate, I appreciate that that answer. And, and to your point, I mean, the ability to, 
to to you know accept you know those individuals and those conversations where you know where where you are challenged right because being challenged is is not a bad thing necessarily if if it's in no the right not structure. at all yeah if it's in the right structure from my from my perspective and it sounds like that's a big element to to how you know you you are an administrator and a, and a leader is in building that culture right is challenging and and I think to that point as well and and this is just out of curiosity you know how how often are students you know challenging the scripture and and how how often are those conversations happening uh, yeah that that's an interesting dynamic um, it depends on what we mean by of course challenging the scripture or even sure challenge, let's say challenging a professor, instructor, faculty members, uh, interpretation of scripture, you know, what, Absolutely, what we, yeah. you know, you know, there's academic freedom. We want our students to be honest about their questions, but we hold as a, we are, we see ourselves as a worshiping community above everything else, because we believe, yes. sorry for this bit of theological framing. No, right, no, Hey, I'm, I'm, believe me, I'm, I'm very open to, to hearing that and, and, and understanding <laughs> even better as, as I imagine our audience would be as well. Yeah. So we believe that our, our, our minds um, and our hearts are darkened by sin and that in order to think clearly, we need grace and we need the help of the Holy spirit. And, and that, that means that we have to be spirit filled in the enterprise of doing the academic work, but it's all, you know, there's a famous theologian, Gregory of Nazianzus, who said it's by the light of God that we can see light. We've got to, get into his presence, be cleansed of sin in order to think properly, in order for all cylinders to be firing properly. Now, I'm not talking about Gnosticism, that we're saved by a certain, you know, heightening of knowledge, sort of like a Scientology sort of thing. I'm just saying, when we do theology, when we study scripture at WBS, we do it as a worshiping community. It's faith, Thomas Aquinas, faith, think, seeking, understanding. And so, that being the case, we come to the scriptures and our study of scripture and even theology with all of that presupposed. And so um, we believe that we can study and understand the text itself by the light of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who inspired the text. It also inspires the interpretation of the text. And so mm. if we have a student in the classroom who's gone, I don't think this is the word of God, then you haven't met the prerequisites to even be in the classroom as a member of the worshiping community. What I'm not saying is that if you don't agree with us on this non-essential doctrinal issue, then you can't be a part of us. Not what we're saying. We're, we're, we're assuming that if you're had been admitted into the program, that you have a conversion experience testimony, uh, which you're going to be at home and understanding the scripture as God's self-revealed, uh, you know, text for the church, the, uh, the, the, the record of his self-revelation through history. So, uh, so, in terms of challenging the scripture, anyone that says the scripture is a word of God, they're, they're, they're studying with the wrong seminary. They should probably go somewhere else. Now, in sure. terms of student, the, the, the dynamic, the, the atmosphere in the classroom of students going, you know, all right, you're interpreting, let's say, you know, Romans 7 as the pre-conversion experience. I don't know that that's the right interpretation. Actually, let's take something simpler. This is an even simpler um, a simpler text, you know, can women teach or preach in the church? And let's say a professor says, I think the Bible clearly says that they can. And let's say the, the student says, I think the Bible says that they can't, you know, we are free to have conversation and disagree about those things because it's a non-essential issue, non-essential meaning not required for salvation. It's not an apostles creed, you know, uh, Constantinopolitan creed, Nicene creed, Chalcedonian creed, 
uh, issue. It's a non-essential. So there's freedom there for disagreement. And I believe that professors, I think that this humility dynamic that is so uh, important for healthy culture, mm-hmm. it, it should trickle from the top down. You know, it should, it should uh, be carried over contagious into our faculty. Our faculty are so secure in who they are as Christians in Christ, but even who they are as scholars, right? There's a lot of people out there, scholars with clay feet. Uh, unfortunately, but it, it just is. And those are very, very easily identified. Like a, a true scholar can spot a scholar with clay feet or a phony or an imposter very, very quickly. And the tell the telltale sign is not even a mastery of the content. The telltale sign is they're, they're insecure and they react when they're challenged. And so if you've got a professor in the classroom who's reacting negatively when they're challenged on an interpretation or an issue, you know, you've probably got an imposter who's got clay feet. And so uh, that's a bigger problem. We, we want a world-class faculty who are solid. So if we've got, you know, we'll make sure we take care of that if we've got an imposter. And so, but our faculty being sound and solid, world-class, oh, challenge them all day, please. You know, I, I know I'm going on a bit on this, but this will be my last point. The whole job of an academic community, whether it's a worshiping community that is religious or secular, is the pursuit of truth. And that in order to refine what truth is, we have to challenge each other. We have to say, where is this argument wrong? Where are we lacking? And listen, this is a virtuous endeavor. You know, the whole point of this is to uncover truth. It's not to belittle one scholar uh, at the expense of, you know, raising the, the, the brand of another scholar. That's beside the point. This has nothing to do with you and me. This has to do with uncovering more and discovering more accurate and precise language for describing uh, what it is that's been revealed. And that is not a personal thing. Uh, This is, we're all in this together with the same aim. Unfortunately, scholars have huge egos. And I say that I have a PhD, right? So scholars have huge egos because they tend to be the smartest person in the room and, and that can have an impact on somebody in their psyche. So so yes, students are free to challenge. If they're not, we've got a problem. We've got a we've got an expertise problem and a humility problem. Well, I I, I greatly appreciate your your answer and that detailed answer and 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 you know I, I appreciate it because I think it gets everybody clarity. You know I think it gets it, it gets uh, you know hopefully our listeners um, you know reason to to think you know and really uh, you know th- th- think about education in general. Uh, but also the, the mission, you know, I think, you know, being able to really help understand, hey, the, the mission, the culture, uh, the communication and the transparency. I, I think it's very yeah. important. Yeah. Yeah. And that mention of mission, that's an interesting notion uh, in light of all this. You know, part of it is the mission for me is to maintain a healthy culture. But there is an end game. Well, why? Yeah. Well, so is to gre- grease the skids and keep keep everything running smoothly and have as little waste as possible and fulfilling the mission. That's, that's the whole, the whole deal, the whole point. And, and when something you have complex systems, you know, I'm a firm believer in complexity theory When you have complex systems, you can lose sight of what the mission is. And, and, uh, and that's one job certainly in leadership is to keep that in focus. Um, so however we do that, I think that can be debated whether you've got it plastered all over the, the walls or you have buzzwords or catchwords you use, use in the office all the time. Um, you know, I try to tend to focus more on keeping us uh, culturally healthy and understanding the mission will take care of itself uh, if, we're, if we're doing it the right way. So. so now, as you've moved throughout your career, are there certain elements 
of, of administration um, that you look at and, and you feel like, uh, you know, you, you lean towards and, and, and like more? Are there pieces that you miss around, um, you know, maybe, maybe teaching? You know, is teaching, maybe that's a question I should ask, is, is teaching a part of what you do today? Uh, teaching students, uh, and I'm not talking about, you know, talking about teaching or working with, you know, with, with other administrators, but, you know, teaching students, is that something that, that you're doing today? And is that something that, that you miss if you don't? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So my, my primary calling, as I see it, is to teach. And I, I teach at least one course uh, a year. So between the fall and spring semester, I'm actually taking this semester off from teaching in the classroom. I am teaching Sunday school and small group and stuff. But, um, but next fall, I'll be teaching again. I try to, I try to be in the classroom uh, for a 15-week course uh, every 30 weeks or so. So, um, so absolutely, yes. And it keeps me revived. It keeps me energized. It helps me balance you know, the fundraising and the administration stuff with the things I'm also passionate about in terms of keeping abreast in my field of study, which is Psalms and Hebrew linguistics and uh, parallelism and poetry and all that stuff, which I love. I thrive on that. When I can stay balanced and not just be staring at spreadsheets all day and strategic information <laughs> reports and board reports, and I can actually, you know, tur turn to the books and do some research and do some writing and that is really good for me overall. And the healthier I am overall, the better it is. So yes, I always, I, I'm, I try to always be in the classroom at least as much as I can without, you know, losing too much of the other at the sacrifice of other duties and responsibilities, you know, and the, the part of the job I, I really don't like, but I do it because it's just the cross and the calling and the part of what I sense God's called to do is I do not like meetings. Um, you know, and I have, to, I have meetings all day long and I, I, I try to keep my afternoons free. I try to do all my meetings before noon. And then so I can focus in the afternoons on, you know, focus time that's uninterrupted. Um, but even I love our donors. Our donors are great. But naturally, I'm, an, I'm more of an introvert and I charge batteries by not being around people. And so um, I enjoy my time with even donor meetings and administrative meetings. But uh, and it's not by far and it's not my favorite thing to do it's something that i have to kind of really be disciplined and force myself to do but also balance out with alone time well and i'll tell you and i and i i think it's it's so refreshing to hear that that you understand that about yourself you know i i think that's very very important um so let me ask you as far as as fundraising what makes a successful fundraiser oh uh, Oh man, there's lots of different things. You know, um, I think the number one thing as I, as I think now is authenticity, um, and passion. Um, and I think those things, one of the indicators of authenticity is passion. It's hard to fake passion. And so when your donors see that you're passionate about something, they know you're authentic. And when you're authentic, they know that you're not you're not just after the money or after um, your your own aspirations. You know, Matt has a goal to just grow this thing to 10 million so he can put a notch on his belt. You know, that's right. not what it's about. I'm, I'm not right. passionate about my own aspirations. Right. You know, I'm passionate about training trusted leaders from faithful churches and the scriptures and, and, a, and an informed laity and empowering laity with knowledge of scripture and with theology and, and so that they can live into the Christian life that Jesus died for. But in any case... Um, when they see your passion, they know you're authentic. When they know you're authentic, they, they know that it's not just about your, their money, that it's a, it, it truly is about the mission. 
And so I'd say authenticity and passion. Um, the other thing I think that makes you successful is being able to make the ask. You've got to make the ask. Mm-hmm. You know, you can cultivate relationships all day long, but if you don't say, look, I, I need you to consider a gift of $40,000 every three years. Is that something you're willing to pray about? You've got to be able to make the ask. And um, it's hard. It's hard because money's a, we see it as a private thing. And um, we don't like asking other people for money. Nobody likes being a charity. Um, sure. We like giving to charity because it feels good, but being a charity is a different thing. You know, it requires a degree of humility. Um, but the reality is, uh, according to my worldview, it's all God's money. And these, we're all just stewards of it. And that people are called as a, members of the body of Christ to exercise their gift of generosity. And they're waiting for something worthy to give to them. All the bad causes out there and all the charlatans, we've got a really good cause for you to give to. And we are resourceful with your money. We are going to steward it really well. Dollars going to go a long way. It's not going to be a ton of waste. Most seminaries spend $41,000 a year on edu- per student to educate their students. We spend 15. And, um, and we're very proud of that. So, so yeah, authenticity, passion, and uh, being able to make the ask, I think are the key to success in fundraising. Oh, that's, that's great. I, I, I appreciate that, that answer and that, that thoughtful answer. And, you know, when you look at, at students, um, you know, how do you make sure, you know, and, and maybe it's even drawing upon your own experiences starting at Asbury University now um, and, 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 and moving on to your, you know, your different journeys as a student. How do you make sure that you that, that students stay the course? Right. Because there are going to be days that are going to be frustrating and, 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 and maybe the student will be questioning their path. How do you make sure that you that you help students persist? Yeah, yeah. Retention is a, a tricky, tricky thing, man, because everything is going to compete for their attention, for their bandwidth, for their energy, for their money. And um, I think a couple things, the, the main thing I appeal to in encouraging students to stay the course is obedience. Like you enrolled in this program because you sensed that God was leading you that way. And I very, I think there are times where he could lead us down a path and then tell us to abandon it. But I don't think it's the norm. Um, you know, I think Abraham and Isaac, he goes up, he says, to kill your son. And he goes up and he says, never mind. You know, um, it was a test of faith. But I think the norm is if he's going to call you to it, it's a call to completion. And so just remember, this is an act of obedience. Don't, don't overthink it. Don't, you know, well, it's not fun or I don't have enough money or whatever excuses you can come up with. Uh, don't forget that, you know, you may be disobeying the call of God by quitting. So just keep it simple. This is just your obedience and obedience is sometimes hard. There are going to be obstacles. The other thing I try to point out is that, edu- you know, not everyone is a master for a reason. Not everyone has a doctorate for a reason. Not everyone has a bachelor's degree for a reason because it's not easy. Um, it requires effort and it requires sacrifice. And this is a part of the educational process. So you know, one of the debates uh, oftentimes among uh, divinity schools, theological schools is, do we really need to make our students do Greek and Hebrew? And some of that's up to the, den- the ordaining denomination. But, you know, even as Bible scholars, do we really need them to memorize all those Greek paradigms and the Hebrew paradigms and the long list of vocabulary words? And are they really going to use it? Is it really necessary? And my answer to that 100% of the time is yes. And to be quite honest, it's, it's not really about the languages. You know, I do believe to be a serious student of scripture, you've got to know Greek and Hebrew, at least oriented to it. But that's secondary, in my opinion. The primary point there, it is, it is mental cognitive calisthenics. 
It is testing your ability to be disciplined enough to sit down. If you can't memorize a list of Greek vocab words, how are you going to deal with someone whose husband just got hit by a car when he was changing a tire in ministry? You know what I mean? Like it requires grit. And this is going to be a part of your grit lesson. It's the whole, you know, (laughs) Mr. Miyagi and Danielson, the painting the fence. This has nothing to do with paint and fences. We're teaching you something else. We're taking you through the motions and we're trying to build up grit in you. And so the fact that you want to maybe take a break or bow out because this is hard, it's like, well, you better learn to be able to push through when it's hard because ministry is going to be hard. If you can't study for this test, you know, how are you going to prepare your Easter sermon when your kid's sick? And um, so that's something I try to point out. Like this is supposed to be hard and it's good. The other thing I point out, this is the last one. The third thing is, um, I know it feels like an eternity. You're in the middle of this. You're halfway through the credit hour requirements. You don't know if you've got it in you to do the rest, but listen, four years of study is a blink in light of the long haul. This is a, this is a very short time. 30 years from now, you're going to look back and go, man, that really went fast. That didn't feel like three, four years of study. And, um, and this, this, this argument especially comes into play for doctoral students because they've been in school a long time. They're trying to write their dissertations. They're weary. It's like, no, push through. You're going to have this for the rest of your life. No one can take it away from you. And I know it feels long and hard right now, but uh, when you hit the finish line and you look back many, many years, it's not going to feel as, as long and hard. So those are the, the main things. Obedience. Um, Learn grit. It's going to be hard. And it's really not as hard as it feels like once you get through it. Yeah, I, well, and, and, you know, and, and I'll tell you, the, 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 the celebration that can happen when you when you complete, you know, when, oh, you, man. when you get through it. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be a mighty celebration and it's going to be so worth it. That, absolutely. So what was your dissertation on? My dissertation was on uh, linguistic parallelism as a rhetorical discourse function in Hebrew poetry. Uh, so really what that means is, um, you know, there's, there's a dynamic in literature called cohesion or coherence um, in which, you know, something can be read as a single unit. So in a story, a narrative, what coheres a passage, the cohesion in a passage is like plot, setting, characters, um, these sorts of things. They're consistent throughout. You're following this, the character's trajectory through the challenges that he or she is facing, you know, climbing, rising climax, rising uh, friction or conflict, climax, and then falling uh, uh, into resolution. But in poetry, we don't have those standard dynamics. Rather, what we have are um, linguistic aspects like semantics and syntax and grammatical repetitions that, that are happening in the text to build and create cohesion. Uh, but also to create foregrounding in a text. In other words, to highlight certain aspects or dynamics in a text. Like in a, in a story, uh, like in a narrative, um, you know, uh, foregrounding comes through rising action and intensity of conflict. Um, you know, you're watching an action film and you know uh, when the big fight scene is. You know, it's when there's more explosions and more visual engagement and all these. But in, in poetry, it's just a little bit different. And so I'm, I'm arguing that it's language at every level that's creating structure and that's uh, holding the piece of poetry together, the various units, macrostructural macro units together, and then highlighting particular dynamics, you know, semantic aspects of the text. 
And so what I do in the dissertation is just evaluate and track and map the various linguistic patterns at all levels that are happening linearly, or what you'd say diachronically um, throughout the poem um, to track like the webs of relationships to see, okay, this is what this poem is all about. Ultimately, it's about right interpretation. How do we know what this poem is all about? And what, what, you know, phrases and lines are subordinate to other phrases. And it gives us sort of like an objective tool for, for identifying that and tracking it. Does that make sense? It, it, it sure does. Yeah. And I, I appreciate, uh, yeah, I appreciate the, the download details. That's very interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. You know, it sounds nerdy, but I really, I miss it. I want to, you know, get more back into my particular area. I've got a, a book I'm, I've been asked to write a review for now in this area. And so it's getting right back into it. And I've been out of it for a couple of years and I'm just thoroughly enjoying it. So that is great. That is great. And I yeah. love it. I mean, it's, it's your passion, you know, it's, it, one, oh, one it of is. your passions. That's really, that's neat. Yeah. I, oh, I love close reading of text and linguistic. I love languages and linguistic analyses and understanding how the brain works and processes data and mapping and for this stuff of foregrounding cohesion and um, information structure and all that kind of stuff. It's, it is absolutely fascinating and a very underappreciated field in, field in biblical interpretation. Interestingly enough, you know, uh, Bible scholars tend to focus more on like historical context and culture. That stuff's important for sure. Uh, as long as we're also accounting for how our brains process language in terms of the transmission of the te text and identifying themes and those sorts of things. Absolutely. Well, that's very interesting. Yeah. Well, well, Dr. Matt Ayers, I, hey, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for a, a very thought-provoking thought leadership podcast. Thank you. It's true delight. Happy to do it. Thank you for guys for, for what you're doing and helping resource us. I'm going to go and listen to some of the other guys so I can learn some stuff. We've always got more to learn. So thank you. Absolutely. Uh, I'll, I'll definitely be in touch and I'll keep you posted on uh, when this is produced. Yes, sir. Until next time. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Uh -huh, you too. Bye. Thank you for joining the Plexus Presidential Podcast Series. For more information on the series, please visit us at plexus.com forward slash solutions. Thank you.